Hey, good afternoon. Hey, good afternoon, everyone. Everyone. Hey, this is Lacey Johnson. This is Lacey Johnson. Bringing you another bringing you another episode of Bright Lights. Of Bright Lights. Our weekly journey. Our weekly journey uh, out into the world uh, of business, out into the world of business uh, ideas, uh, ideas, economics, economics, and family and values. Family values. Uh, uh, we've been very fortunate. We've been very fortunate uh, the past few weeks uh, to have some very exciting guests. Very exciting guests. And our objective uh, is, our to, objective bring on, is uh, to bring on uh, these uh, guests these of great accomplishment. Great accomplishment. Uh, and uh, as bright and lights, as bright lights, lights and shed uh, lights, what they're doing, uh, what they're doing, and be a light to other people, light to other who may want to emulate, who may want to emulate their success. And I feel and very, very, uh, very, very excited, uh, excited even, as I always do with our guests to have to young man. He might, young man, a, and he uh, might give me a, take me a uh, task for calling him a young man. Calling him a young man, but he uh, is on this evening. Uh, on this evening, who's like, like excellent and excellent the investment field, investment field. He's an athlete. He's an athlete. Community community organizer. Things like that. Things like that. Mr. James. Mr. James. McDonald. He's also he's also an investment investment provide investment commentary investment commentary on CNBC. So the man is so the man is good at what he does. Just good at what he does, and so we're happy to have and him. So we're on, happy to have him uh, this on this evening. Uh, this and before evening. we bring on, we, Mr. Bring McDonald, on Mr. James, McDonald, James, uh, I like to uh, just tell like you a little bit about it. Tell you a little bit about uh, it. Uh, uh, he'll fill uh, in some uh, more. He'll that, fill in some background. More his background. Uh, he's the founder. Uh, he's the founder and CEO and CEO of Hercules Invest, Investment, an LLC based in Los Angeles. And he's also a Los Angeles registered investment advisor, investment fund, advisor manager fund manager of Hercules, a fund mutual fund. A fund mutual fund. Uh, prior to founding, uh, prior Hercules to founding Hercules, James was founder, James was founder, and CEO, and CEO of Index Strategy of Index Advisors, Strategy advisors uh, from 2006 2008, 2018, where he led the design, led the design, and the and the of exchange traded funds, traded index funds, options, index options, focus on portfolios, on portfolio. And then in 2013, he was named. He this. was named one get of this. America's one of top ten. ETF advisors by ETF.com. ETF means exchange traded exchange fund. And he was one of the. And he was one of the best. Like I say, we're going to get great guests for you. James also with a director initiative, a wealth management, a management compass bank. A co-author of a co-author of, 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 of a book how called to invest in How Bitcoins. to Invest in Bitcoin by two Harvard minds. As it implies, he's as a graduate of Harvard University with a bachelor's degree in economics. He's fiercely uh, competitive, he's fiercely and I let him tell you. I let him your, tell you about his athletic, his uh, athletic uh, also, uh, also. He has been a football player, a boxer, boxer, and he, he's, boxer he's just an all around, he's just an all guy, great guy. Uh, so, uh, so I will end it there. End but it there, the but up. the summit up. Uh, this man, uh, has this man has been accomplished, accomplished all his life, all his life. Well extended background, education. What I love about it, I love about it. We've had, we've had Ralph Clark, Ralph. Clark, uh, the CEO, uh, the CEO of Shot Spiders, of Shot Spiders uh, in the technology uh, in field, the technology field, field, investment field. 
Economist on. Economist on. We've had we've had emergency ER doctor on. Doctor on. And now tonight we have Mr. McDonald's. And what else want to say? What I love about that. Three of the four. Three of the four previous guests that I named are African American. African American. And my pet peeve there. My pet peeve there. Why I really love. Why I really love so much them. It's because they get very little. Because they get very little publicity. Publicity uh, in the mainstream, uh, in the mainstream, media, media, hear about all the great things about all the great things doing. that they've been doing. And, uh, a good example and, uh, of that is, uh, of that when, is uh, when, Robert Smith. Uh, Robert Smith uh, paid the tuition, uh, paid the tuition of all the students of down, all in the students down in Morehouse. Uh, most of the people, that's uh, most, in of my people circle, that's most of the people, most of the people, most of the people, didn't know who Robert didn't Smith, know who was, Robert Smith was, even though he was the richest, even though he was the richest black man in America, four billion dollars, four billion dollars. What has so been great? Has been great. My journey, my journey, great about my journey. Great about my journey. Is I get a chance to meet, work close with all these people, and introduce them, introduce them. So speaking of introduction, speaking of introduction. Uh, introduction uh, good afternoon, uh, good afternoon, James. How are you James, doing? How are you LA. doing out there in LA? Excited to talk to you again, Lacey. Everything is great here. Okay, great, great, great. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, so get, let's get into it, James. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background and uh, how you ended up being such a great uh, investor uh, and investment manager uh, at this stage and what in your life was happened that would predict that. Sure. Well, I think, you know, first of all, we have to uh, say thank you for having me on today. It's exciting to see you and talk to you. And uh, anytime we get an opportunity to share our perspectives and our stories, um, it potentially has a positive impact on others. And I'm always excited about that. And my journey, like a lot of people's journey, has had a lot of fits and starts and ups and downs. Um, and getting where we are is certainly not easy. And so I think you know, part of the message that we have to communicate to anyone is to get where you want to go. Uh, you have to keep trying and keep trying and keep trying. And that persistence is something that has been a thread that's woven all my experiences together in life. I have to credit my parents. Uh, you know, parenting is very underrated. Um, you know, we learn and we know what is taught to us. Uh, my father was an extraordinarily persistent entrepreneur and my mother was an extraordinarily persistent and devoted teacher of her children and mother. I have four brothers and, you know, I'm the dumb athlete in my uh, sibling class and uh, my brothers are all extraordinary. And I think, you know, it has to do with our parents. And I learned at a very early age from my father about work ethic. Uh, my older brother was a year older than me and he had severe asthma. And I can remember there were times when he would wake up wheezing and coughing and at all times in the morning. And one particular time I must've been three or four years old, I remember my brother was having an asthma attack and it was the middle of the night. And what struck me is that when I woke up listening to my brother's wheezing, I saw the light on in my father's office. He was working at three or four in the morning. And that was the norm for me to observe my father's work ethic, a tireless work ethic, a consistent, persistent work ethic that was just unmatched. And, and that embedded in me what was supposed to be. And my mother was a devoted teacher. Uh, she taught me how to read. I was homeschooled through sixth grade. And, you know, that foundation provided me with a great platform to go and pursue my goals, whether athletic or 
professional. Um, I learned about the investment industry late, relatively. We read about now teenagers and middle schoolers trading stocks. And I didn't even know what a stock was until I was probably a senior in high school and didn't have a command of it. Uh, but read a book about an entrepreneur, a guy named Reginald Brown. And I was dis I discovered that book because I had started a nonprofit and uh, one of our board members, uh, uh, Felicia Lopez Walker, her husband was the author of that book, Blair Walker. And she said, hey, you should check out this book. And I've read the book and I had no idea that people could make hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in any career. And it was important to me because as persistent as my father was, he struggled a lot uh, as an entrepreneur and I saw him succeed and I saw him fail. Uh, and so I had a strong desire to be successful and kind of avoid some of the challenges that my father had. And I read the book about Reginald Walker and he matriculated at Harvard Law School. And so I had to go to Harvard and, you know, I took a circuitous path to Harvard. I originally went to a state school and had a football injury and had to drop out because of the severity of my injury. And when I went back to school, I made sure that I went to the best school in the world. That's what it was at that time and uh, probably still is uh, the Princeton and Stanford people will debate that. Um, but I took advantage of the education while I was there. And so I'd say the two foundations are, you know, parenting, having a household that guides you the right way, and then getting an education, the best education that's available to you. And, you know, when I was at Harvard, uh, people asked me about the parties or the, 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 the lifestyle. I was in the libraries, man. Uh, you know, there were 250 libraries there. I was in the libraries if I wasn't in class, soaking up every bit of information I could. And that has really prepared me for uh, my career. Oh, that's a great story. Uh, I have a similar one, and we we'll focus on that. I uh, visited a actor friend of mine in New York City back in the '80s, I think late '80s. And he, after the, the limousine would come and pick him up and take him to the NBC studio every morning, uh, I'd sit there and have some coffee. And he had a book on tax shelters uh, laying on his table, and I read that, and it just clicked on me: this system is set up to promote businesses and things like that. It's not for individuals. So that changed my whole outlook on economics and everything. Also, you mentioned a couple of things that I think is key. Uh, family, it sounds like you had a two-parent home, and I think yes. that is is a big key, even though people try to, it's not politically correct to say that nowadays. And you also mentioned education, and you combine that with a, a mentor, a role model in business. And so those are the three things I think as we progress, and succeed in those areas, it will get to the root causes of a lot of issues that's going on in our community. So I really appreciate that about you. Now, speaking of our community, uh, there's a large uh, amount of young people nowadays that don't trust the system. In fact, almost to the point where they don't even want to participate in it. Right. And we know that there are, yes, it's competitive. It can be tough but we can't stay away from competition and toughness. Right. What would be your message to a young person out there who's saying, no need to be trying, the system is all rigged, et cetera, et cetera. What would be your message, especially those young people in these disadvantaged communities? It's a great question. And, you know, throughout the generations, there persists a rebelliousness of, from the youth. Um, any generation you go, change is sought out. I think it's important for uh, young people to understand context. You know, this, mm -hmm. this social experiment, this political experiment called free enterprise, called democracy is just that. It's very young 
in the context of world history. And if you study history, uh, this place wasn't set up for fairness. It wasn't set up for equality. It wasn't set up so that everybody could be happy. It was set up to protect the guns and the gold from the king and the queen. Yes, yes That's yes, why yes. we were set up. It was yes, a revolution yes. uh, against the British Empire. And in that context, this country was established among principles of building your own wealth and building your own future aside from your bloodlines, aside from control from a monarchy. Uh, and in that context, we are all responsible for our own trajectory. We're all responsible for our own life. And I think that if you understand how and why this place was set up and understand what the constitution really means, it means that we have an opportunity um, away from uh, a king and a queen to make our own life and make our own future. And no one's gonna give anything to us. We have to go out and set goals and work extremely hard to reach those goals. And I think if young people understand that and understand that this is not set up for you and everyone else to be happy, for you and everyone else to get ahead, it's set up for equality of opportunity. Um, and we know as African-Americans that we are behind a huge eight ball with that, but we're catching up quickly. Um, and every single day and every single decade uh, and every single generation we're making advances and now it's your turn. You can go out and you can create a whole new set of possibilities. Uh, and fortunately, many of the ills of society and many of the ills of politics uh, have been overcome, not just for African-Americans, for, for people, uh, for women and for people from other minority groups, uh, including those that have uh, different lifestyle preferences. If you think about where we are today compared to where we were 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, um, you know, the opportunity for you uh, is humongous and there should be no excuses as to why you can't set your goals and go reach them. Uh, you hit on a, a quite a few key areas there. Uh, first of all, uh, the this generation versus the previous generation. And what I find is that the older uh, generation has a context of what's going on. Uh, I tell people, I remember the time where I think we see maybe one black face on TV a month. Uh, I still remember the time when uh, they were putting white artist pictures on black musicians and black singers albums. And so we've seen so much. I mean, well, let's face it. Uh, the number one football dynasty in the country right now is Alabama. And, you know, some of us still remember the time when Alabama didn't have any black players on this team. And we remember the time when the Northern colleges were dominating sports because they were going down getting the black athletes. So what, try, what I'm trying to say, if you got the context, you've seen how much improvement has happened. And, so, and that's why we take a different look. Uh, the other thing you mentioned is just the competition side. And I heard somewhere that uh, uh, perhaps a majority of the people on Wall Street uh, are former athletes. And when you have that thirst for competition, which I've always had all my life, uh, I didn't care. I, it really didn't matter to me what the rules were or whether it was fair or not. It's just that I had a goal I wanted to get to and whatever it took to get there. And right. you also mentioned whether or not it was, it was fair. And I, I love to tell people, my dad always told me, son, Fair is the place where they judge pigs. So I don't even want to hear you complain about whether things are fair or not. Just you better get went out there and work and go to work. A uh, couple of things too. Uh, take a minute or two to explain to our 
audience how Wall Street works. Sure. Wow, a minute or two. And so in essence, you know, it takes money to make money. Let's just start there. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a general rule. You can't really make money without some resource capital. Mm -hmm. Wall Street is a euphemism to describe the place where traditionally banks and brokers, businesses that introduced entrepreneurs to lenders or investors, uh, it's where it all started. And Wall Street exists to provide capital to businesses so that they can grow. And that capital comes from a few different places. It comes from individual investors like you and I who can open a brokerage account and put our savings or our capital in it and then use that brokerage account to invest in companies so that they can grow. And if they do, we should see a return on our investment. And then the other sources of capital are institutions. Um, We as employees generally have 401k plans or some type of retirement plans. Well, those assets don't just sit. Those assets are invested by institutional investors and institutional investors buy stocks and buy bonds and invest their money into companies so that they can grow. And so Wall Street is a place where people invest, organizations and institutions invest, and then entrepreneurs or businesses can find capital uh, to make more money. And so that's what the marriage of Wall Street does is it introduces capital to businesses so that money can generate more money. Excellent uh, description there. Uh, speaking of uh, bringing Wall Street to bear in various areas and various businesses, mm-hmm. uh, there's something out there that, that's called the opportunity zone. And really, as I see it, what it does is encourage people with money to invest in these economically disadvantaged communities. What is your opinion of fundamentally how that whole uh, opportunity zone designation, which came out of the 2017 Tax Cuts and Job Act. Tell me how you feel and what you see at the potential of the opportunity zone type uh, of funding uh, for disadvantaged economically community, economic communities. Well, there are a lot of layers to this. And so let's just start with the economics of it. There are penalties for making money in America and they're called taxes. Uh, and taxes are levied on profits so that the government has the ability to have a budget for police officers and firefighters and school teachers and all of those important functions in any society to allow us to live uh, and enjoy life safely and healthfully. And the government budget comes from taxes and taxes can be a big strain on investors who have experienced a profitable outcome. And obviously, if it takes money to make money with less money from a taxable situation, there is an incentive to minimize taxes. And so the empowerment zone that came out of the Rodney King riots, where you have a neighborhood that's been dilapidated and a social disadvantage and an economically disadvantaged area, which then promotes a lot of crime and promotes a lot of heartache uh, and is a vacuum of progress, the government has decided that if we can incentivize investors to put money to work 
in a way that's going to reduce the impoverishment, in a way that's going to increase jobs, in a way that's going to develop the socioeconomic status of an area to lift up all members of a community, not just in the rich neighborhoods and in the nice neighborhoods, but in the disadvantaged ones, if taxes could be reduced or even avoided, that capital would then have an incentive to move in. And so it's a beautiful concept where I as an investor or institution as an investor can make more money by paying less taxes if I invest in areas that have a socioeconomic disadvantage and have experienced all of the consequences of socioeconomic disadvantages, which are increased crime, increased drug use and abuse, increased, uh, 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 or I should say lower education. Uh, and, and it just, these are the factors that lead to, um, let's just call it uh, a troubled life and a troubled society. If we can get some of the root causes of crime and some of the root causes of poverty or uh, economic inequality mitigated, then we can, as a society, lift up more members and all benefit. And so uh, the, the zone concept is a periphery, an area where there is a heightened need for capital and a heightened need for progress, but a lower tax burden. I think it's a beautiful idea and it's something that all people recognize as a benefit. I read recently that, you know, uh, when I first was exposed to finance, I mentioned I read about Reggie Brown and his success. What really got my attention to the book was Mike Milken and what he did with junk bonds. Oh, yeah. oh, this right, guy right, made right. billions of dollars in a short period of time, revolutionized his interest. I just saw that Mike Milken, this is a guy with worth billions and billions of dollars and has created hundreds of billionaires through his businesses, is investing uh, in an opportunity zone. Um, oh, wow. because of the tax benefits in Nevada. And so this is something that people from, you know, across the spectrum of wealth can look at as a viable, strong investment, but then also have a philosophical, a philanthropic, and a civic-minded, vested interest in improving society while seeking a return on their capital. Uh, that whole topic of milking and derivatives that's uh, like a, a blast from the past, as they, as they say. I, I didn't know that he was still out there doing some great things. I do know also that for you and you just indicated that it's not just about making the money. You some, feel some type of responsibility as a, as a personal, as a person, as a corporate citizen. Why don't you share with us briefly just your whole outlook and philosophy on how you give back and it's right. not just a greedy person out here trying to make as much money as right can. yeah i mentioned I, I you know really originally went to a state school out of high school blew my knee out my freshman year in high school and had to drop out because there was no hospital that could take care of my leg where i went to school and when i dropped out as a 19 year old i hung out with my friends that didn't go to college and saw firsthand uh the terrible options that were available for young black men in the dc area during the crack epidemic and it motivated me to start a nonprofit. And I call that nonprofit options. It was an acronym for opportunities provided through interactively organized network systems, a big long winded description for a mentorship, academic enrichment and career training program that put what I thought were the most important people into a situation where they could discover their own talent. I know a lot of criminal activities require ambition, courage, intelligence, and toughness. Those are the same things that are required 
to be successful academically and professionally. And so I wanted to show my peers the options they had by pursuing uh, a good life through legal and traditional means of education and career. And I started a nonprofit and our nonprofit was pretty successful. And that civic mindedness in me is what really triggered my own intellectual development. I didn't know I could be successful at fundraising. I didn't know I could successfully present to executives and get nodding heads and yes and written checks. And so after a while, I wanted to be the person that wrote the checks myself rather than ask for them. And that's when I transferred to Harvard and pursued my financial career. But the civic mindedness that keeps society with potential is important in all of us. It's something that has to be done right though. There are a lot of nonprofits that struggle. There are a lot of, particularly in our community, there are a lot of service providers who are well-meaning, but lack the resources and or the rigor of business uh, capabilities to make a big as an impact as could be. Um, but it's something that I think everyone has some calling uh, to serve in the context where your fellow man can benefit from your knowledge or can benefit from your network or can benefit from uh, your financial resources. And I think that's something that remains important to me. Uh, James, you just casually mentioned how you transferred from State College to Harvard yeah. as if it was just a piece of cake. Right. And I know it was not a piece of cake. I don't know. I'm assuming it wasn't. So yeah. what kind of hoops did you have to uh, jump through to transfer from State College to Harvard? Right. Well, I'm a very driven individual and, and I pursued my nonprofit with a passion that you wouldn't believe. I, uh, you know, it blew me away that people who look like me and friends and peers um, could get killed in the street and nobody cared. And I pursued it with a passion. I happened to be in the D.C. area where there are a lot of Fortune 100 companies, Amlaw 100 firms, and I went after them. And the skills that I developed in interfacing with C-suite executives at literally the largest and most profitable organizations in the world, because of the passion that I had for what I was doing, I wasn't afraid, I wasn't intimidated, I didn't believe in the mystique. And I could sit and talk to a, a, a JW Marriott or the head of Lockheed or the head of uh, IBM or any business and look them in the eye and tell them why they needed to support my program. Through that process, I saw directly what it took to get to the C-suite and knew that you know uh, Harvard would be a good education for me. Uh, mother did teach me to read well, and so I took several tests and I had to test in. And when I got there, it was a breeze. You know, I, I don't say this often publicly, but um, you know, I wasn't intellectually challenged by the academics at Harvard at Harvard because I knew exactly what I had to do. I, I had met people in industry and knew that the people at the top of industry had great educations. You know, there's a lot of great educations outside of Harvard, but I definitely took advantage of it while I was there. Um, and, you know, I'm proud to say my daughter was accepted to the class of 2025 here a couple weeks ago. And, you know, when she was uh, uh, born, I knew she was going to Harvard and she did 18 years later. There's something in our bloodline uh, with uh, intensity and that's what it takes. And, you know, Harvard is a lot of things to a lot of people. But the most important thing is it's a good education. And I think that's the point that young people and all people need to get. Um, I was 29 years old when I graduated from Harvard. I was a non-traditional student. Um, and so I also had a little bit more maturity to know what I was gonna do. But like I said, um, you know, it's just about a great education more so than uh, the name of the school. So as one who was not uh, fortunate enough 
to transfer from a state college to Harvard. Uh, <laughs> um, we, we've talked about this, I think, uh, aside from the great education. Oh, and, and by the way, I had a son who went to Brown. And so I know about what I'm getting, the subject area I'm getting ready to broach here. Uh, tell us about the networks that you established there uh, that uh, are very advantageous right. as you go forward in life. How does that whole network go? And because I think uh, that's probably, it might be even more important than the education, but tell me what you think about the whole area of establishing these networks and uh, as a result of being a Harvard graduate or an Ivy League graduate. Or I'll, I'll answer graduate. that, but I'll say also, you don't need to go to a fancy school to build a strong network. The nonprofit that I built before I went to school I built a network and if you are tenacious, uh, have integrity, work hard um, and work smart, you will attract like-minded people. And with those relationships, you can expand the reach uh, and potential of getting your ideas executed. When it comes to the Harvard network, there's this concept called normalization, right? And so mm -hmm. among us alumna, I mean, it's a normal thing, right? That's, that's just where we went to school. And, within the different networks of Harvard grads, you have different tiers of people. Many are service oriented, uh, many are socially oriented, many are mission oriented. You know, Harvard comprises a university that has like other universities, as much emphasis on improving the world as it does making money. And there are a lot of people who are passionate about change outside of making a dollar in the context of how I've leveraged my Harvard network, it's been probably on the less aggressive end because as an individual, um, I really am very focused on the goals that I have set out. Haven't needed a ton of networking. Uh, I find myself probably providing more mentorship to young Harvard grads than I do seeking out Harvard relationships. But I will say when I encounter a fellow Harvard grad, I know uh, there's a rigor of intellect there um, and I give them the benefit of the doubt as well as I get the benefit of the doubt because of that association. But there is a rigor there um, for all schools. You know, I think something that I want to address outside of the elitist concept of Harvard is there's a lot of young people who haven't finished school. There's a lot of uh, grown folks that haven't finished school and there's somewhat of an intimidation about going back and finishing. You don't have to go to Harvard, but right. if you go back and you finish school, uh, regardless of what age you are, it's to your advantage because the same respect and acknowledgement of intellectual rigor that happens among Ivy League graduates happens among all college graduates. And That's a good point. There is a concept that someone will whisper in your ear after you graduate and they say, welcome to the world of the educated. There is an implicit respect there and assumption of training that you've received that you know how to read and you know how to write correctly and you know how to solve problems, uh, it's important to finish your education regardless of um, the prestige of the school. I like your story uh, earlier, how you, while everybody else was out partying, uh, you were studying and in the library, a uh, similar type of experience. And I just used to play mind tricks with myself uh, on a Saturday night when I'm going to the library, I'm imagining I'm a scientist going into a research lab and yeah. I'm doing all this great work. Uh, uh, going back to another thing, uh, when you were describing Wall Street and the stock market and everything, uh, 
you mentioned how people would uh, risk, take their own money, risk it, work hard, sacrifice. Where I'm getting to, James, is that because of the recent pandemic mm-hmm. and some of the other issues, we've got a lot of people who have risked everything and have either lost everything or very close to losing everything. How do you feel about that whole situation where really we're put a lot of people are put out of business by this and a lot of them are never going to come back. How do you see that whole situation? And is it something we could either prevent it or mitigate it in a very, very strong way? Well, it's a difficult question to answer because on the one hand, perhaps the most deadly threat we've faced in our lifetime was met with a response from the pharmaceutical industry that is without precedent. The amount of work and diligence that went into creating a vaccine and logistical challenges into getting people vaccinated, it's one of the greatest accomplishments in human history. It could have been so much worse. And we're reading headlines about the ravaging effects of COVID in India right now. We could have 10, 15% of our population wiped out were it not for the magic and hard work of the pharmaceutical industries. Now, having said that, this disruption the pandemic has caused is without peer. We are still grappling with the scope and the implications of what's happened. It's affected our business. It's affected my ability to read markets. It's affected my ability to navigate markets uh, in a very, very challenging way. We have never seen anything like this before. And what I notice that's so different about this pandemic is the paradox. As difficult as things became, markets and Wall Street became stronger. The implementation of monetary policy with no consideration of future debt, no consideration of balance sheet management, only the consideration of maintaining calm and confidence has created this fervor of stock market buying that is without precedent. If we look back to the roaring 20s where stock markets were soaring and then had a collapse in 1929, this outguns the 1920s bull market by 20%. If we look into the dot-com era of the 2000s where the prospect of technology had companies with no business plan with multi-billion dollar valuations. We've exceeded those levels. We are at such a high level of valuation now across our markets, across our asset classes. Houses are now selling for 30, 40% more than they were worth just a year ago. Mm-hmm. When bankruptcies and corporate debt and delinquencies and evictions that would be implemented and foreclosures that would be implemented are at the highest levels. We have this paradox where in the most challenging of situations, we have the most prosperity as it relates to stock market prices. For those businesses that were shuttered, for those people who are dependent on paycheck protection, and for those people that are receiving government benefits, it is a time bomb. And what we're looking at is the potential unwinding of our lifetime's most severe crisis and most effusive stock market environment. It's a very, very difficult market to read. It's a very, very difficult time to predict what will happen. Um, And we're we're very vigilant here at Hercules Investments that 
you know, a reckoning is coming. We do think the market is going to uh, realize what must be done, which is the valuations of businesses should reflect the prospect of those businesses. Uh, speaking of that, I know in your field, there's something called a market correction. Mm-hmm. Are we talking more than your normal market correction here? Right. So I've been wrong on this. I've been calling for, you know, severe market correction uh, since last May. And the opposite, opposite has happened. The market has gone straight up. We did see a 10% correction. Uh, the word correction has a pretty strong association with a 10% right, right, uh, okay. decline in stocks. And we did see that on the Russell 2000. We saw on the NASDAQ. But we haven't seen it on the Dow. We haven't seen it on the S&P 500. That, um, but we're 23.5% more valuable as an entire stock market than we were just before the pandemic hit. And just before the pandemic hit, we were at all time highs. We had followed from March of 2009, a trajectory where stocks had risen higher and for longer than they ever had in history. And so, like I said, we're sitting in a very, very strong paradox where the most dangerous outside of nuclear war risk that we've seen has stimulated and has prompted the most prosperous stock market. And Wall Street and Main Street have a divide. And that divide is the wealth of the wealthiest has ballooned and the economic vulnerability of the least wealthy has continued to sap. And what we have is a reckoning coming that's gonna be very challenging. Uh, We heard from the Fed chair today where they reiterated their commitment to monitor and be vigilant what COVID and what recovery looks like. And so there's going to be no raising of interest rates like there normally we would um, in this type of inflationary environment where we have the price of lumber uh, 150% higher than it's ever been, the price of houses 40% higher than they were in previous bubbles. Um, and so this may continue for some time, but we believe strongly here at Hercules uh, that there will be a reckoning and we intend to profit from it, to be frank with you. The whole area of the Fed and their monetary policy, that's a whole long discussion there. Uh, but you did hit on deficit spending. You did hit on the debt, uh, monetary policy, and perhaps some of the impact that some of the deficit spending because of COVID uh, is going to have on the future. Uh, we do know that historically, uh, once we went off the gold standards and everything else and went to currency and paper money, that there's a lot of people think that was a big mistake. And we also have a situation where uh, there's something that's come out recently called the modern monetary uh, theory. Uh, I'm quite sure you're familiar with that. Those of us who are novice at that, uh, we can't understand how anyone would think that that would work. What's your opinion, and I didn't want to prejudge anything, but what's your opinion of this whole new modern monetary theory? Well, the government uh, has always been there to provide security. Mm -hmm. And I like to drive cars, and sometimes me and my car club will go to the canyons and to the mountains, and we'll like to drive in the winding roads and experience that. At every bend or turn, there's a guardrail Mm -hmm. on every highway where there's speed in different directions. There are guardrails, there are barriers. And those barriers were set up by the government to protect us. 
and what the modern current monetary policy stances, it's a set of guardrails. It's a set of guardrails that protect us from spiraling unemployment, turning into a recession, turning into a run on banks, turning into a cataclysmic uh, a social environment. The guardrails of providing liquidity to banks, the guardrails of providing income to consumers. I mean, Lacey, if I had said to you two years ago when the stock market was hitting all-time highs or last year when the stock market was hitting all-time highs, if we had said to you, you know what, we're going to give as a monetary policy practice, as a fiscal practice, we're going to give every household that doesn't have a job or lost their job a paycheck to replace it. And they're not going to have to work for it. We're going to defer, delay, or change the need to pay taxes on time. You would have said this is some Orwellian fantasy. Mm -hmm. It can never happen. But that's what we've been doing for the past 10 months or so. We've been giving money away, and the promises are to keep doing that as long as it takes. It is an impossibly difficult situation to have predicted, but the Fed understood what the risk was. If we allowed COVID to ravage the communities by allowing businesses and people to continue to go as they would, we would have a potential health crisis like we've never seen before, which would then become a national security risk, which we will not allow. Mm -hmm. So they said, we're going to pay you to stay home. And the businesses that close and the companies that couldn't get past it will suffer. But now we're sitting with a complacency in our economy where the perception is that things are going to be fine. Um, and it's difficult to see how that's going to be the case. But the government as an investor, they don't have a time horizon. When we sit and think about our investments, we know that you know, we have our earning years and our saving years, and then we're going to retire, and then we're going to die. And this is how much money we need by this period of time. The government's timeline, their return on investment, it can be infinity. You know, they don't have any uh, a time horizon for a return on their investments. And so they can keep printing money, and they can keep giving money away, uh, and they can keep assuaging the market um, so that those guardrails are in place. Uh, you know, we don't want to see uh, uh, chaos and we take for granted the freedom that we have. We don't have to worry about rocket propelled grenades flying into our bedroom window. We don't have to worry about our daughters and mothers being raped with rifle butts by militiamen. We don't have that worry, but that's what happens in economies that collapse. Right. Militias take over and people with, with malintent seek power. Um, and that was a risk. We had riots, we had economic chaos, we had a lack of control, we had crowds uh, bullying law enforcement. Uh, it became a risk. And so all of those reasons contribute to why the Fed will continue to provide support um, to whatever extent it needs. Um, and then on the backdrop of that, we have a lot of businesses that were pandemic proof, digital businesses, businesses like Amazon, did businesses like Netflix, businesses like Google and Microsoft, where all their products are digital. And with us in this forum here today doing a, a podcast digitally, uh, these services are in high demand. And so there's been a lot of profits generated, but then there's been a lot of uh, um, support and guardrails set up by the government. And I think those guardrails will probably stay. 
uh, the next generation of investors. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the next time there's a, a potential national crisis, how stock markets behave. Uh, this bull market could be pale in comparison to the next one when this comes around. Uh, you mentioned uh, your interest in cars. Uh, tell me something about that, how far back it goes, what have been your all-time favorite car uh, when you, as you go along and when you make your first billion, what is the one car uh, that you want to buy? So just tell us a little bit about your interest in cars and, and how that works. Yeah, fortunately, I hit all my goals with cars. Uh, you know, as a kid, I didn't have the internet. I had magazines and I was never interested in the comic books. And so I read the car magazines and uh, my goal was to always have a Porsche 911 Turbo. I'll tell you a quick story. As a high school senior, I worked at a gas station that had a detailing bay and we would take the cars to go get lunch. And one day there was a 911 Turbo there and I took it and I wrecked it. And um, they tried to get me in trouble, but they knew we always took cars. It was part of the practice. And a comment was made by the owner of the gas station. He said, well, you'll never own that car. And uh, I think I've owned four of them now, uh, 911 Turbos and that was always my dream car. Um, but yeah, I bought all the Lamborghinis, all the Ferraris. Uh, you know, it's pretty much one of those things where, you know, I kind of did that. I do like driving fast. Um, but my focus now is business. Um, as you know, this, uh, we talked just a minute ago, this pandemic has really humbled us. We've been short this market um, since May and it's gone straight up. And so we're going through a challenging time with navigating the risk in this market for our clients and for our own company. And so uh, no more fast cars right now for me. It's sitting in this chair, getting my job done. Okay, so I try to respect the time of uh, of my guests. Uh, so we're going to start winding it down here now. A couple of, uh, of, of quick things also. Tell us a little bit about your athletic career. I And I was surprised to hear some of the things that uh, you do and you've been doing. So why don't you let us, let the audience in on uh, your athletic prowess, James. Right. Uh, I was probably never a good athlete, but I had willpower as strong as any elite athlete. And uh, I mentioned I was homeschooled. It wasn't because of choice. I got in a lot of fights in elementary school. And finally, my mom just pulled me out and, and she taught me how to read and write. Uh, well, she did. And when uh, we moved to the East Coast, so I grew up in Phoenix through sixth grade, we moved to the East Coast. My parents uh, said, you know, we got to do something with this aggressive energy, put me in football. I didn't know how it worked, but I knew I got to hit people and I really liked it. I was undersized. I mean, I was sixth grade playing with fourth graders. I was about the same size. And uh, I liked hitting a lot. I really liked hitting a lot. And then my parents had something on me. They said, if you don't stay out of trouble at school, you can't play football. And that's what really kept me in academics. And uh, I was always undersized. I was a hundred pound freshman in high school. I was a 150 pound senior in high school. Uh, but I hit harder than anybody else. I knew I was good. Blew my knee out when I was 19. But when I was 35, I got a second chance. I had an orthopedic surgeon as an investment client and told him the story of my knee injury. And he said, let me fix you up. So when I was 35 years old, I got my knee fixed and discovered semi-pro football. And from 2006 until 2019, I proceeded to go around the country and knock the hell out of everybody on every football field I could find. I would sign up for the number one team in the country. I would fly there, I would get an apartment, and I would try out for the team, and I would proceed to beat the hell out of every player uh, I could find. And in every league I played in, 
I did earn the respect of my teammates and my opponents as being one of the hardest hitters out there. I was very blessed to get a second chance. Uh, Want to make sure people don't give up on their dreams. For me, football became a dream throughout high school. And when I lost my knee at 19, I kind of was depressed after that. But when I got the second chance in semi-pro, let me tell you, I was uh, right up until the end, uh, 2019, and 47, 48 years old, I led the league in tackles, won defensive MVP of my team, uh, and runner-up defensive MVP for the league and won the championship. And, you know, every player that played on a team with me or in a league with me, I'll tell you that I was one of the hardest hitters out there. And that's just part of my energy. Uh, picked up boxing in 2019 and won a heavyweight championship here in Southern California. And I might go back to boxing. I have a little football injury I need to get back. But, uh, you know, this market's been punching me in the face for nine months. I'm ready to punch back. And uh, I feel sorry for whoever I get in the ring with if I get back into that. So, James, help me understand this. Uh, in the boxing arena, we're not talking about a 72-year-old Larry Holmes or something you're beating up on. <laughs> we, uh, we're talking about really competitive boxing, right? Uh, well, uh, what's your uh, record, uh, number one? Undefeated. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. Which me? well, I got to ask this question, too. Have you ever been knocked out, James? No. No, never been knocked out, never been knocked down, uh, never been beaten. And, uh, you know, with respect to boxers who are the best in the world, they lose, they do get knocked out, they get new, mm -hmm. you get beaten, uh, but not yet. And, okay. uh, you know, I tell people when I was playing football, you know, I'm still looking for somebody who can who put me on my, on my back. I never found it, but, um, you know, boxing is a sport I have to give deference to and respect because, you know, those guys have been doing it since they were been eight, nine years old. Uh, most boxers are more skilled than me, but a few boxers are more willed than me. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, it is a, it is a sport of willpower. Okay. Uh, continuing the athletic theme, I guess, mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to end, uh, I'm going to throw you a couple of little curveballs or knuckleballs here, or however you want to call it. Mm -hmm. uh, you were involved uh, in investment in Wall Street, I think back in 2011, when Occupy Wall Street mm -hmm. uh, was doing their thing and, and criticizing capitalism and things right. like that. How did you feel about that whole movement? And do you think it brought any benefits or just an awareness? How did yeah. you feel about that whole movement? Actually, it was in New York. So I was actually in Manhattan uh, over by the Lincoln Center during a protest, watching people get arrested. You know, this is, um, you know, they call it, let's just, call it on the, the wealth divide. And mm -hmm. it's a very troubling thing to, to walk up to a skyscraper. Every major city has a bank and an energy company and you know, a real estate holder that has a skyscraper. And many of them make millions and millions of dollars a day. It's a sad thing at night to walk to that building and see someone sleeping on a grate, a homeless person, at the foot of basically a, a, a tower of wealth, it's mind boggling and I get it. Um, the Occupy Wall Street movement was a protest. Um, but as I said, as we discussed, this company was set up, excuse me, this country was set up to protect the guns and gold from the king and the queen. It wasn't set up for everybody to be okay no matter what and you know thank goodness for th philanthropy thank goodness for civic-minded individuals and foundations uh but this is a problem that we have to do something about and i hear you talking about it all the time the root causes 
of poverty need to be weeded out. We need to get young teenage mothers education. We need to get them parental training. We need to get toddlers of individuals from single parent homes and or socially disadvantaged areas economically. We need to get tutors in there to read it. My mother read to me. I saw so many books at three and four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and 10. I didn't want to see another book, but that's why I've been successful. It's because of what I was taught. Um, and I think the Occupy Wall Street concept, the protest concept is a lagging indicator of what can be done. The leading indicators are education, early education, getting people who uh, are socially and economically disadvantaged, the tools necessary. And I want to say there's so many programs out there for the gifted and talented. We need programs for everyone else. Um, I would have never qualified for inroads. A, a organization that took gifted and talented African-Americans and introduced them to opportunities. And, you know, we need inroads for, for, for the kids that aren't doing well. And I, I am very passionate about that. And it's something I intend to work with you on. Um, it's not about protesting. It's about preventing, I think, yes, yes. Uh, to really address some of the challenges. But, you know, when there are things that are, are wrong, uh, I think about other areas, you know, we've seen asbestos, we've seen you know, super fun. We've seen criminal activity at a high corporate level uh, that needs to get rooted out. I think there is a need for activism there um, to protect us uh, because there are a lot of uh, uh, bad actors in the corporate world. Um, but to target Wall Street all around, all across the board, you know, I think it's misplaced energy. Okay. Quickly, you did mention being in New York and Lincoln Center. Quickly, I'm assuming you've gone to jazz at the Lincoln Center. Uh, yes. On the is that a wonderful event? It's just it is. Magnificent. I like the restaurant there on the second floor, Porterhouse. It's one yeah. of my favorite restaurants in the oh, world. Oh yeah, and just look up in the building and and Winton Marsalis and yes. I mean it's just an amazing event that everybody should ex experience once in their life. I love um, New York. I love New York too, and I haven't been back since uh, uh, the pandemic. I'm looking to get back there. New York is my favorite city. You wouldn't recognize it, man. Um, we took our fund. You know, I, I run a fund called NFLHX. Uh -huh. Owed to my desire to own an NFL team, and we took the fund public in Times Square. I've never seen Times Square so empty. Um, you know, the social distancing that was happening. This was January 29th. Um, New York has uh, looked like a ghost town. Uh, you know, you wouldn't recognize it. I should make a clarification for my audience out there. I said New York was my sec my favorite city. It's actually my second favorite city. Uh, most people who know me know that my hometown, my little hometown in Mississippi, Natchez, is my all-time favorite city. Uh, another quick little uh, curve or knuckle here. Uh, Black Lives Matter uh, is also like a protest group. Uh, they have received uh, a massive amount of uh, funding uh, do you have any, and, and, and we don't want to be too controversial, but do you have any uh, suggestion of how that money could be used and deployed to address some of these root cost issues uh, in these communities uh, of which they express concern? Right. And, and I say this with no hesitation. You know, I don't know uh, what the efficacy of Black Lives Matter is. Or is not, um, you know, it's a it's a concept that has been commercially moved uh, into an organization, um, and I think that 
you know, if I can just expand outside of Black Lives Matter into these themes, the Me Too movement, uh, we saw uh, people who had gotten away with sexual intimidation and sexual harassment rooted out of corporate America, people that have been mainstays for decades, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. eliminated because of a movement, the Me Too movement. And it was a beautiful thing. Um, I have a mother, I have a daughter, I have many cousins who are women and aunts, and it was a wonderful thing to see a movement root out embedded unfairness and injustice. And I hoped when Black Lives Matter came to fore, you know, the phrase Black Lives Matter is irrefutable. Of course, Black Lives Matter. I've been unconvinced that the organization behind the theme has been efficacious to institute change like the Me Too movement did. Charlie Rose is out. Roger Ailes is out. I could go down a list of 100 men who had power taken away because of the movement. I don't know that I can enumerate change from Black Lives Matter where evildoers or wrongdoers have been rooted out. And I'd like to see that. To the answer to your question, I think that we need more than an idea to get progress. I think we need people like you, uh, people who move between the business world with the empowerment zones and the political world and are willing to stand up in a perhaps non-traditional way as an African-American Republican to say, listen, we do matter, but what we do matters. Right. And I haven't seen that from BLM. And I think that if I could use a magic wand and direct their funds, uh, it would be to prevention and intervention um, and to show more headlines like Morris Brown has been uh, uh, reopened. I'd like to see Black Lives Matter put money into that campus. Uh, It's got its new accreditation and get more education. I'd like to see Black Lives Matter put money into HBCUs and put money into recruiting uh, tutors to go into the inner cities. And if you're a 14, 15, 16 year old teenage mom and your parents can't educate you because they like education, what does it say for your future? What does it say for your children's future? I like to see Black Lives Matter uh, uh, go in and get tutoring done and parenting education. If, if, If people read to their children like my mother read to me we would have a tremendous impact on society and this is true for most people uh, who've been able to reach their goals and or aspire to reach their goals Um, and so i don't know that black lives matter is making that impact i'm not criticizing them i'm just looking at what me too did in terms of effectuating change you know practically overnight I'm still waiting to see that with, with BLM. Okay. And I understand now that Hercules has at least one fund uh, right now. Uh, are there? Tell us about that fund and any other funds that you have right. and uh, any future plans you have right. uh, in that area. Well, we're in a battle. We've been very persistent that this market is overvalued and coming down and it's gone straight up. So we're in a battle. Uh, with this market. And we have a fun NFL HX uh, that is designed to perform when markets fall. NFL HX is the only 
publicly traded two and 20 fund. We plan to launch 11 additional funds that have the same feature where if markets fall, the fund has the potential to rise. Um, and we're gonna cover all the important categories, e-commerce, artificial intelligence, green energy, healthcare, uh, all of the areas that we know that will be uh, disruptive technologies in the future, uh, 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 ecologically friendly vehicles, self-driving vehicles, and uh, we're going to get these funds here out in the next six to 12 months and really make an impact on the industry. Uh, we've got to survive this bull market, though. It's been an incredible journey to see this market go straight up in the midst of a pandemic. Well, James, I could sit and talk and discuss economics, investment, monetary policy and uh, for a long time. Uh, but I'm going to wrap it up uh, by asking you, what would you say? Because to be honest with my audience here, uh, I'm often thinking about the, some young people who may be sitting, sitting and listening to us right. and trying to wonder uh, what goals they should have and what goals they can achieve what would you say uh, to the younger generation out there if they are interested in moving into the investment uh, field right. and they are just skeptical and concerned either that they don't think have the confidence they can do it, they don't think it works. Uh, what would you say to our younger generation out there based on your knowledge and experience? Right. Well, you have to have the audacity of hope. And I'm quoting a fellow you may know about, Barack mm -hmm. Obama. Um, you know, if someone had aspired to be president of the United States and their skin color was like Lacey's and mine, they may have been called foolhardy. They may have been called unrealistic. And, you know, he did it. And, and I think that even as a Republican, I have to point to his story to say, look what's possible when you have the courage to pursue your goals and your dreams. And in the pursuit of your goals and your dreams, understand you're going to have challenges. And one of the things I have to say now is that, you know, the challenges of reaching your goal and keeping your goal in place can be immense, but you can never, ever, ever give up. And at some point, once you decide to pursue that goal, you're going to run into roadblocks and you're going to hear people tell you, you can't do this or you can't do that. Um, and it can be extremely challenging to stay self-confident, but you have to do so. Um, and I'm a living testimonial of it. You know, by not quitting, you find yourself winning. Um, and if you have a setback by not quitting, you find yourself moving forward. And that's really important. Know that you can pursue anything that you want. Know that there are going to be setbacks and challenges. And know that to get there, you have to never, ever quit. Well, James, this has been a very uh, rewarding experience talking with you. We'll have to get you back on again, because like I said, Thank I can you. talk about it forever. Looking forward to seeing you either in Los Angeles or seeing you here in Minneapolis. I think we have a lot of things in common that we're trying to accomplish and set the standard for. So I really appreciate that. And I'm going to end this Bright Lights episode with this question, James. Mm -hmm. With your love of these turbocharged Porsches, how many speeding tickets have you gotten, James? Uh, none that have been uh, finished. You have to get the right lawyer. <laughs> okay. Well, once again, thank you very much. I know you're constantly trading. I know you're the chief trader for your uh, investment firm. So we really appreciate it. 
Uh, have a great time out in L.A. Have a great dinner and look forward to seeing you soon. It's been great. Thank okay. you so much. Lisa. Okay. And thanks to my audience out there for joining us again. Uh, we really appreciate it. Uh, we hope to keep offering you more knowledge, more information, more encouragement. And my thing has always been, if James can do it, I can do it. And if I can do it, you can do it. And so let's, when we look around, and I think James and I both from a similar background, I never ever saw anyone doing anything that I didn't think I could do also. And we just need to encourage our young people to do that. And when they're trying to figure out how to do it, we need to give them a step-by-step -step process and procedures and give them all the support that they need. So thank you 